2 Peter chapter 1, and let's look at verse 20. There's a time word here at the beginning of this sentence. Knowing this first. So there, the, the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, is giving us an order of importance on this subject of inspiration and interpretation. There's, there's, there's a, a ground level, a foundational principle that the Apostle wants us to know. Let's look at it. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Has anyone ever said this to you? That's just your interpretation. Well, it sure do mean something. It might not mean what I'm saying, but it does have meaning. Amen? Verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. I hope you'll mark that, by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let's talk about this for a minute. Abraham Booth was a pastor of a church in England, and he wrote this. This was when he was ordained. He had to give a statement of what he believed about the Bible. And I was able to uh, acquire a copy of this book from the early 1800s. And listen to what he says. This divine book, this heavenly volume, I accept with humility and gratitude from the hand of my adored creator as a gift of inestimable value. And considering it as the grand charter of my eternal salvation, I cannot but esteem it as my indispensable duty implicitly to submit to its sacred dictates in every affair of religious concernment. That is the heart that we ought to have for the Bible. When it comes to this discussion of interpretation, let me tell you this, it must be approached with great humility. With great humility. Uh, let me tell you, there is no man on this earth, let me say it again, there is no man, there is no human being on this earth who is the arbiter of truth. No one person has the final say about what's true and what's not true. This book is the final say. That's why this subject of interpretation is so important because I have a lot of opinions. How many of you have noticed that I have a lot of opinions? Some of them are good opinions, some of them are bad opinions, but they're all mine. And what's so funny is there's often, oftentimes I found that I don't agree with myself. So apparently I am not the final arbiter of truth. Amen? I'm going to shock you guys. It is possible for me to make a mistake. We, we do have a doctrine of pastoral infallibility, right? <laughs> no, I guarantee you this is one very fallible pastor. But it is my desire to approach the book this way. I'm accepting this sacred volume with humility and gratitude from the hand of my adored creator. That's the way that we approach this. So when we approach this subject of interpretation, we'd better do it with humility. We're going to find out why that comes uh, why that becomes so important. So what is interpretation? That's where we're going to start with, that's just your interpretation. Interpretation is a simple process by which we determine the meaning of words. Words have meanings, right? Meaning. Um, one of the things that makes it difficult, from what I understand, people who come from other countries and they're trying to learn English, would be like the word meat. You know, you have meat that you eat. That's like animals. There was a, this, I had this vegetarian waitress one time. I said, is this good? She said, I don't know. I don't eat meat. And I said, well, if we're not supposed to eat animals, why, why did God make them out of meat? <laughs> right? She, she just got a little cross-eyed. She didn't have any idea what I was talking about. But <laughs> So you have this word meat. So someone says, it's, I, I'm happy to meet you. Let's go eat some meat. You know, those types of things become difficult, but those words have meanings. And how do you determine the meaning? Most of the time by the context. You know, that's the way that you interpret the Bible. You interpret the Bible by the words as they're used in their context. 
So the idea of interpretation is not as difficult as some people try to make it seem. We're going to find out where that came from. But interpretation, as I'm speaking to you, and as a public speaker, some of you others who have done public speaking, you know that when you're done speaking, people will have heard many different things. Sometimes somebody will say something after, I didn't say that. But I know that's what you meant. No, I pretty much meant what I said. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very unsophisticated man. I'm not complicated at all. I'm pretty much going to tell you what I'm thinking. No subliminal messages involved here. But anytime you do public speaking, people are going to interpret what you're saying in different, different ways. But many times they're going to interpret it through their understanding of words and different subjects. All right? So it's like this. Chad Albers is here. Chad knows a lot about math. So it, when I'm talking about math, when I speak about math, I have a different understanding of it than he does. For me, it's evil. <laughs> I'm just terrible at it. I'm terrible at it. I, I'm, you know, the kids, we do the homeschooling and come get times for the math. I, don't come to me. I don't have any idea. I don't get it. So he would understand terms a lot differently than I would. So how are we all supposed to understand the Bible then? Let me show you something. Foundational truths. The first of our foundational truths is the Bible is absolute truth. So here's what I want you to understand as we talk about this subject of interpretation. Everyone that's under the sound of my voice, whether you're here in this room or you listen to it by CD or Internet later on, I want you to understand something. When we talk about the Word of God and interpreting it at Grace Baptist Church of Sydney, Ohio, what we mean is we accept every word of this book as true. I accept every word of it as having come from the hand of my adored creator. This is absolute truth. That's where the humility comes in. Well, if this is absolute truth, then who am I to change it? Who am I to change the meat? Well, that's not really what that means. He didn't mean that. When the Bible says that, um, look at 1 Timothy 2.11. Let's get an example of this. Keep your place in 2 Peter because obviously we'll come back here. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. We're about to get politically incorrect for a minute, okay? I'll try to get back to uh, political correctness as my norm. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. If you go into broader Christianity today, they're going to say that we have to understand that passage culturally. That women were of secondary importance in that day, so we shouldn't take that to be true today. That's where we are. And that's where you end up with Joyce Myers. You know, uh, popular, uh, sells millions of books. Uh, Paula White. Um, you can go all the way back to Catherine Kuhlman. You know, the, the, this idea of female preachers, it comes from people taking that text and saying, that's not really what it means. It's pretty declarative language. It's if you just take the clear meaning, the simple meaning of the text, you can't come to any other conclusion than in the church. And of course, this is a pastoral epistle. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, telling him how to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what he says about these books, First and Second Timothy. So what he's saying is that in the institution of the church, male leadership is required Female leadership is prohibited. That's not a cultural thing. When I read that text, and this has happened, where someone asks me, do you believe that women should be allowed to preach? I say, let the women learn in, all, in, in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And here's what they say. That's just your interpretation. Well, let me ask you all a question. When you go to the bathroom... And you look on the sign, and one sign says men, the other sign says woman. How do you choose which one to go into? That's just your interpretation. 
It's funny how these interpretive tools work nowhere other than religion. This is very simple language. And, of course, this message is not about female leadership in the church. I praise God for the godly women that we have in this church. Amen? You have a very specific, detailed, and vital role to the life of this ministry. You just can't be the pastor. No excuses. That's simply what the Bible says. So the idea of interpretation, this book, this book is our infallible, perfect guide. And we believe it is absolute truth. And the concept of interpretation is just taking it at its word. All right. So now, not everybody believes this. (laughs) How many of you? That's a surprise. Not everyone believes it. Not everyone believes that the Bible is this perfect absolute truth the bible says in proverbs 30 verse 5 every word of god is pure he is a shield unto him that unto them that put their trust in him this book god is a shield to me as i accept every one of these words is true now i want you to understand not everyone even in conservative christianity believes this we showed this video a couple of weeks ago ravi zacharias is uh, one of the the foremost Christian leaders today. He's a Christian apologist. That means he defends the faith. And to be perfectly honest, he's helped me a lot. I've read a lot of his books. He's very good in debate settings, argumentation. But look at what he believes on the Bible. But when you look at the scriptures, and by the way, the Bible is a very distinctive piece of literature to any other religious piece of scripture. Any Muslim will tell you that his book, the Quran, is word for word perfect. It is a perfect revelation of Allah in the eye of the Muslim. They will affirm that again and again. That's why no translation in, of the Quran will ever do justice in their estimation of the Quran. It is the perfect expression of, uh, of Allah himself as t- dictated to Muhammad who recited it. Now, the Bible as we, know, as we know it does not affirm that verbal perfection. I actually have a great deal of difficulty with verbal perfection. Are we really saying that no one word would have been better than the other word in, in, these, in the volume of material? But when you take the scriptures disclosed over centuries and over, over 1,500 years, as I said, 40 different writers, 66 books, and you see the prophetic schema all the way down to the person of Christ. Let me give you an example of this. That's broader Christianity. So when we stand up, when I begin this message with the very important position of Grace Baptist Church, that we accept every word of God as true, that we do believe in verbal perfection and verbal preservation. We believe that we have the very words of God. Understand that not all of Christianity, even conservative evangelical Christianity agrees with us on this subject. Now, let me tell you how dangerous that is. That was at the University of Illinois in a major stadium. He's answering students' questions on the truth. He just told a bunch of young people that they don't have to believe that the Bible is literally true. But in the whole realm of sacred scripture, there is truth. Well, then all of a sudden my humility goes away because now it's up to me to determine which words are true and which ones aren't. Maybe man or woman in 1 Timothy 2.11, maybe woman doesn't really mean woman. Maybe it just means person. Well, it can't be that. Then nobody can teach. Maybe it means man. Oh, wait a minute. Then only women can teach. What is it teaching? The other thing about that passage that would help you to understand it, if it doesn't really mean a woman, then does it mean that Adam wasn't created before Eve? And so that we shouldn't take the first six chapters of Genesis literally? Do you see where the problems come in? Who becomes the arbiter of truth? Who becomes the determiner of what is actually inspired and what is not inspired? Who becomes the arbiter of what is uh, preserved and what is not preserved. I promise you this. God said every word is pure. So if he is the arbiter, then I'm just going to say that this is pure. God promised that he would preserve and keep 
his words. Well, if God has promised that he, as the God of the universe, would do that, then I will in humility submit to that and trust what I hold in my hand. So then when it comes to this area of interpretation, what happens is, oh, let me do this before we read that. When it comes to that area of interpretation, what happens is you got to get this. Don't miss this. There's really very little disagreement among Bible believers about what this means. Um, I met Jeff Faggart maybe five years ago. Well, that means I was, I'm 40, I was 42 at the time, and I think he was also. I think we're the same age. I'm just much better preserved. Um, so I met Jeff, and we start talking about the Bible. Jeff never went to Bible college. Interesting. He never went to Bible college. I went to three. Left some of them, not by my own choice. We have a completely different scriptural education. He came up in a Southern Baptist church. I came up in an independent Baptist church. He is self-taught. I am somewhat self-taught, but I also have, you know, some formal education. But when we start talking about the Bible, we believe exactly the same thing on everything that we've ever discussed. Even the even minute details of what specific words in the Bible mean. We, we have the same agreement. Um, we have some books available by James Knox on uh, defining the words in your Bible. Um, we've got some of you had ordered some and they're in just so you know there's an announcement for you. Well, it was so refreshing for me to find James Knox. I start reading his things and he is saying he says he says phrases in his teaching that are ex the exact same phrase that I would use to describe a passage of scripture. And our education has no crossing. We don't have the same influencers. We don't have any of the same influencers. But you know what we do have? All three of us believe every word of this book. And when you believe every word, you're pretty much going to believe the same things about it. So on this area of interpretation, the reason... And, and I'm going to make a very bold statement right now. The reason that there are so many different interpretations of the Bible is because many people do not simply believe the text as it's written. So then what happens is, as the Bible described Israel in the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel, so every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When there's no king... The Bible says God has exalted his word above his very name. When there's no king, everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. All right. So now let's go on. Not everyone in broader evangelicalism, broader conservative Christianity believes what I just said. Uh, one of the things that I like to do when I'm doing one of these subjects is I'll take my subject. Why are there so many different interpretations of the Bible? And I just Google that question. And it's so amazing what comes up. One of the first things that came up was R.C. Sproul's website. Now, it might seem like I'm beating up on Sproul, but Google is, okay? I'm just, this is one of the first things that came up. So he has a question and answer on a segment on his website. And so the question is, why are there so many different interpretations? Well, he answers that. Here you are. The first thing I want to know, this is when you're hearing someone interpret the Bible. The first thing I want to know is, who's giving the interpretation? Is he educated? I turn on the television and see all kinds of teaching going on from television preachers who, quite frankly, simply are not trained in technical theology or biblical studies. They don't have the academic qualifications. I know that people without academic qualifications can have a sound interpretation of the Bible, but they're not as likely to be as accurate as those who have spent years and years of careful research and disciplined training in order to deal with the difficult matters of biblical interpretation. Well, that sounds good. Now, here's the deal. I got to tell you. You break your leg, I want you to go see Dr. Edwards. Okay? Because I'm going to say, hmm, looks broke to me. Put some butter on it. <laughs> uh, when it comes to 
an academic field like that a specific detail, then, then he's the man. You know, Laura with teaching the, the kids math. I'll, I'll, I'll tell her, call Yvonne. She's got training in math. I don't have training in math. Don't come to me with a math question. But what about Bible? The Bible is a unique field that is open to everyone who has received the Lord Jesus Christ, has the indwelling Holy Spirit, and believes it. Now, see, I can believe that I am a doctor as much as I want. You don't want me cutting on you. But what we have done is we have taken this love of scholarship and applied it to the scriptures when a scholar, the technical definition of a scholar, is one who has mastered their subject. Has anybody ever met anybody that has mastered the Bible? How do you master something that's supernatural if you're not? That's why it must be approached with humility, and you can't handle the Bible the same way that you're going to handle Shakespeare. You cannot do it. So his understanding is that in order to understand the Bible, that you have to have been trained in theological, what is it? Theological, careful research and disciplined training in order to deal with the difficult matters of biblical interpretation. I don't know. The Bible's going to tell us how we're supposed to interpret it. I think I'm going to listen to God as opposed to Sproul. Now look at what he says. The Bible is an open book for everybody. Now, I believe that. If he put a period there, we would be in agreement. But there's only a comma. Look at what he then says. And everybody has a fair shot of coming up with whatever they want to find in it. That's his opinion of the way the common man is going to approach the Scriptures. I'm so glad we have Sproul. What would we do? If we didn't have his education and training. Oh, no, all we have is the Bible. What are we going to do? You know, nowhere in here does it say that God inspired and preserved R.C. Sproul. Nowhere in here does it say that I've got R.C. Sproul in me and he'll teach me all things. Amen? Makes me think of that M&M's commercial with the pretzel. Have you seen that? The M&M's saying, I don't want that thing in me. And the pretzel says, I'm not too excited about it either. (laughs) You know, I'm glad Sproul's not in me. But look, the Bible is an open book for everybody, and everybody has a fair shot of coming up with whatever they want to find in it. We've got to see the credentials of the teachers. Not only that, but we don't want to rely on just one person's opinion. That's why when it comes to a biblical interpretation... I often often counsel people to check as many sound sources as they can and then not just contemporary sources. Let me say this. This is the way that I was taught also. And so I got all these books on doctrine, all these different commentaries, and then I'd come to the difficult passages. You'd be amazed at how many of the commentators do not comment at all on difficult passages. Great courage. And then when they do, if I've got a stack of ten books... If six of them don't comment, the four that do, what if they have four different interpretations? Then what am I supposed to do? It's like a roulette wheel. Let's just just spin the wheel, whatever. Wherever she lands, there you go. Is that how we're supposed to interpret the Bible? Then look at what he says. I often counsel people to check as many sound sources as they can, and then not just contemporary sources, but the great minds, the recognized minds of of Christian history. It's amazing to me the tremendous amount of agreement there is among Augustine, Aquinas, Anselm, Luther, Calvin, and Edwards, not Phil. (laughs) The recognized titans of church history. Really? I always consult those because they're the best. If you want to know something, go to the pros. You know, the Bible never tells me to do that. We're, we're going to find out some things about Augustine. We've already learned some things. It's interesting. Augustine is, is claimed by the Roman Catholic Church as the father of Roman Catholic doctrine. Why would Sproul, a Presbyterian, send people to Augustine? Anselm. What about Aquinas? Aquinas is the one who brought Socratic reasoning into the church. But, so we need Socrates to help us understand the Bible? Really? 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 The pros. 
The Bible is a self-interpreting book, folks. Let's look at the scriptures. Let's see what the Bible says about itself. First thing here is the Holy Spirit of God is the authoritative interpreter of scripture. So let's go back to 2 Timothy. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Let me tell you what this eliminates. Okay, I'm going to give you a phrase that I hope to never hear from you again. All right, this will eliminate this phrase from your vocabulary. Let me tell you what this passage means to me. Now, you can say, let me tell you how this passage helped me. You understand that's different? Because it definitely means something to God. The significance is what it means to God. Let me tell you what this passage means to me. Does that mean that if you were never born, then the passage then has no meaning? Or is there meaning intrinsic in the passage? I need to remove myself from the interpretive process. I need to remove myself from the meaning of the text. I only come into the picture after the text has revealed itself and I view myself through the lens of the text. I don't view the lens of the text through myself. Huge difference in understanding. Look at Genesis chapter 40. Look at verse 8. We spent a bunch of time in Joseph earlier this year. Looking at the life of Joseph, look at verse 8 here. And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. You say, wait a minute, this is talking about dreams. It is talking about dreams, but this is a statement about interpretations. All interpretations belong to God. I don't get to determine my own interpretations. Look at Genesis chapter 41 and verse 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Remember what had happened. Pharaoh had had two dreams. He needed someone to interpret the dreams. His wise men couldn't do it. So they called Joseph in to interpret the dream. They wanted him to give the interpretation. He is telling Pharaoh, it is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So, and when it comes to interpreting the scriptures, I am not the interpreter. I don't interpret it for you. As your pastor, I do not interpret the Bible for you. God interprets the Bible. It's my job to give you God's interpretation of the text. All right? Look at Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 28. Uh, let's look at verse 27 for the context. <clears throat> Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. He goes on and gives the interpretation of the dream. But he also says that God is going to tell you what's in the latter days and there is no, that there is a God in heaven that reveal the secrets. So if I'm going to try to understand the word of God, I must understand that there's a God in heaven that reveals these things. The Holy Spirit is the authoritative interpreter of Scripture. Number two, the work of the Holy Spirit in interpretation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? read that again. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you? The Bible says, if any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if you are born again, is there anyone here this morning you're born again? Well, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, you've repented of your sin, you realize that there's nothing you can do to pay for your sin debt, that you deserve hell, all of us deserve hell because we're people. All of us sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If that's your understanding of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, and you've come to him by faith, receiving that free gift of eternal life, you're born again. And if you're born again, then you are the temple of God. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. There's no second working of the Holy Ghost. When you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Amen? All right. Look with me at John sixteen thirteen. How be it when he, this is Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples, how be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So here's what the Bible says. This is what God was telling the disciples. Have you ever wondered... This is a parenthetical statement. Have you ever wondered how the disciples remembered everything that Jesus had said to write it down accurately? This verse just told you. When he comes, the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. He will bring all things to remembrance. That's what a text says. So the disciples were able to remember exactly what Jesus Christ had said and write it down word for word because the Holy Spirit helped them do that. Um, I want to clear up a fallacy right here. One of the things, one of the interpretive problems that you run into is many people try to spend too much time determining the intent of the writer. They're trying to determine the, the personality of the writer the educational influence on the writer, and what outside sources did the textual writer use, did the writer of Scripture use? Like Moses, how did Moses know what had happened? He must have read that stuff somewhere. Oh, I know, it was an oral tradition that was passed down from Adam and his kids, Adam and Eve and their children, all the way to Moses. So he was able to write those things down. It was just an oral tradition. So we don't accept the actual words. We just believe the stories. No. Holy men of God spake. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It doesn't matter what Paul's personality was like. It doesn't matter what Peter's personality was like. It doesn't matter that Luke had a different educational experience than the Apostle Paul. That's not significant because God had them write every word that he wanted them to write. And again, what I just said to you is so foreign to most Bible colleges and teachers. They spend so much time trying to determine the personalities or the intent or educational influence on the writers. We don't have to worry about that. Amen? That's an interesting aside. It's very interesting to study the life of the Apostle Paul. Very interesting. But it has nothing to do with what he said. He wrote down exactly what God wanted him to write down. Very important. Okay? Now, let's go back to this. The Bible says that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, that he will guide you into all truth. So the Holy Spirit not only told the disciples what to write, but for us today, the Holy Spirit interprets what the Bible means. How does that happen? Well, when the Holy Spirit teaches a believer, he teaches him by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Okay, now we're going to read on there in a second, so keep your place, but don't miss the teaching that the Apostle Paul is giving us right here. Very clear that we have the Holy Spirit, God has given us the Holy Spirit, so that we can know some things, right? There's some things that we need to know. What is it? That's interpretation. If you're always worried about trying to determine what the text means and you feel like you are not qualified to determine the interpretation of the text, then you're not going to know anything. You're not going to know anything. 
How many of you have ever asked somebody why they have the ashes on their head? Well, that's what happened when we first moved to here to Ohio. I came in on a Wednesday and I noticed people, the first person, I almost said to him, hey, you got something on your head. Because with my background, I had never seen that before. The places that I had lived, they weren't Roman Catholic communities, and I didn't know what Ash Wednesday was about. But how often have you ever asked? And so what I did, I began asking people, what's, what's up with the ashes? What's the spot on your head for? You know what they said? Well, we do it at our church. Why? I don't know. How many of you have ever received that answer for that question? Now, there are some who can give the answer, right? There's no doubt. There are some. But we don't live that way. As believers, I am supposed to, but sancti- the Bible says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer of anyone that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you in meekness and fear. We should be able to answer biblically and scripturally for everything that we do and believe. Amen? Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit that's going to show us so that we can know some things. That's what the text says. Look at verse 13. Which things also we speak. So we know some things, then we speak them. Not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the Holy Ghost is going to teach us these things that we can know, not through man's wisdom, R.C. Sproul. Y'all get that? This verse right here? I'm not going to learn through Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and Edwards. That's not my authority, even if those guys had some good things to say. No, I'm going to learn what to say by the Holy Spirit comparing things spiritual with spiritual. Well, what does that mean? Let me make a comment on what I just said about reading these men. Anyone that knows our ministry here, I love to read the writings of Christians of the past. That's a very valuable thing to do. Find out how God has revealed things to people through the scriptures, how they saw those things, how they interpreted them, what God did in their lives. That's all very valuable. Amen? But it's not authoritative. That's the difference. I give Edwards no, that there is no authority to Edwards compared to the authority that I give scripture. Are there writers that I trust? I read after James Knox. I agree with almost everything that he writes. He helps me to see some things. I would give James Knox more authority in my own life than I would give Jonathan Edwards. James Knox is nowhere near the authority that the word of God is. So how does this work? By comparing things spiritual with spiritual. Now look at verse 14. But the natural man, that is the man that is lost, the unsaved man. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You ever wonder why people don't understand what you're teaching and what you believe? How many of you know people from other churches that think you're crazy because of what you believe? It's very interesting. There are people that probably attend this church They attend sporadically. They're not here as we lay the foundation for what we believe over and over again. And they think that many times our beliefs are just reaches, that they're just opinions, not realizing that everything that we are dogmatic about at Grace Baptist Church comes from the rock-solid granite uh, foundation of the Word of God. Verse 15. But, there's a contrast between the natural man, but he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So here's the idea. Why in the world would I go to Jonathan Edwards and have him instruct the Scriptures? Why should I go to some Bible scholar and have him change the meaning of specific words or truths in the Word of God to fit into his system? Why would I do that when I have the mind of Christ? Where did God reveal his mind? Through the words of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit is going to teach us those things, comparing things spiritual with spiritual. Look at John chapter 6. 
How does that work? That's just your interpretation. Let's look at John chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man descend up where he was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. Now look at this. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. So when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will teach us comparing things spiritual with spiritual, then we're supposed to judge all things. What we're supposed to do is understand that the very words of this book are spirit and their life. That's what Jesus said. He's going to ascend. Then what are you going to do? You're going to rely on the flesh then? No. His words. His words. And His words are spirit and life. We know We can know some things the Holy Spirit tells us as we compare things spiritual with spiritual. So here's how you interpret the Word of God. You read it, and then you compare those words, phrases, and sayings with the other words, phrases, and sayings of the Bible. God teaches us how to understand it because it is a self-interpreting book. Their spirit and their life. When we say that, we mean that the Holy Spirit is able to show you what a Bible passage means by taking you to another Bible passage that defines it. Any interpretation from any other source is a private interpretation. Now, I want to talk to you. Uh, We're going to go to what major religions believe about the Bible here in a second. But I want to talk to you about some fundamentalist fallacies on the Word of God. Some things that people just mess up that we hear all the time. The first is the danger of know-nothingism. Well, there's just some things that I guess we'll just never know until we get to heaven. Now, that is a true statement about some things. But most of the time, the thing that they're talking about there is just something that people disagree on. And the way to get along is to say, well, you can't really know that. That's a cop-out. Because the Holy Spirit says there are some things that you can know. I was recently having a a cup of coffee with someone, uh, a religious leader, and we were talking about a subject. And he said, well, I guess there are some things we just won't know until we get to heaven. And I said, well, I know this one because the text says it right here. Look, let's read this verse again. Here's what it says. I know what this one means. This one right here. I know this one. I'm sorry that you don't. But you can if you just accept what it says. The danger of know-nothingism. There are some things that you can know and believe and be assured of. That's what the Bible says. Amen? All right. Then, there's another one of the uh, fundamentalist fallacies. The longer I live, the less I'm sure of. A preacher said that to me. You know what I said to him? Well, then you need to get another job. Amen? Now, let me say this. I've said this often. I know a lot less about pastoring now than I did 14 years ago. Man, I thought I had all the answers, you know? And then I started pastoring and found out I didn't. That's not what the Bible's talking about. What's interesting is because of the influence on the culture, because of the the vacillating nature of Christianity, guys are afraid to take firm stands on Bible doctrine anymore. Because Dr. Widebottom disagrees. Well, listen, it doesn't matter what that guy says. I don't care how many letters he has next to his name. If he says something that goes against the clear, verbal understanding of the Bible, he's just wrong. Those doctors that bled out George Washington, they were educated. Right? Those scientists that thought the earth was was flat, they were educated. 
Maybe they should have read the Bible. The Bible says the life of the man is in the blood. Life of the body is in the blood. The Bible says, talks about the circle of the earth. See, those scientists could have learned a lot of stuff about the Bible, a lot about reality from the scriptures. Amen? All right. So what do major religions believe about the Bible? This is why we end up with different interpretations. We're going to run through this quickly. What does the Catholic Church believe? Now, this, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just giving what um, some fundamentalist or Bible believer said about Catholicism. So I went to Vatican II. That is the uh, Vatican II took place from 1963 to 1965 or 66. And that was the restatement of Catholic doctrine by the church. Okay, so that's where this information comes from. Later on, I'll quote a document that came out in 1993 by Cardinal Ratzinger, where the the church gave an encyclical on how to interpret the Bible. So we went to what they believed. So Vatican II affirmed that both scripture and tradition were the revelation of God and could not therefore be contradictory. Now, understand what that's saying, that Roman Catholic tradition is inspired by God in the same way that the Holy Bible is. I found out the hard way. I, I, I hadn't been pastor here long. And we had the Lord's Supper. And I didn't put the sheet over the elements on the Lord's Supper. And some people got really mad at that. Really mad. Well, here's the deal. I wasn't against doing that. I didn't know that that's what they had done. That was a tradition in this church that I wasn't aware of. Right? Is that the same thing as saying that when we take the Lord's Supper, that the juice becomes the blood of Jesus and the bread becomes the body? Do you see the difference in the tradition? One tradition is just, it's just something that we do. It really has no authority. It just doesn't. We do it because we want to do it or we don't do it because we don't want to do it. We have our church service at 1030 in the morning. All the other churches start at 11. Why? Because you have a long-winded preacher. Okay, that's our tradition. That's what we do. Now, look, those are traditions. We could change the church service time. It just wouldn't matter that much. Have to print up some new literature. When we meet, time-wise, doesn't matter. Amen? Some of you I can tell because you come in whenever you want. (laughs) Those are traditions. They don't matter. They're not inspired. This is inspired. But what they are saying is transubstantiation, which is a tradition of the church, can be found nowhere in Scripture. That is truth. The infallibility of the Pope. When the Pope speaks, ex cathedra, from the chair, when he speaks for the Catholic Church, he cannot make a mistake. That's tradition. The uh, the teaching that Mary was immaculately conceived, that she was virgin-born. Or that she had no other children, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Well, he had brothers and sisters. How'd that happen? You see, so many of those things that are tradition, what they're saying is tradition and scripture are equal. And you wonder why their interpretation is different than ours. You see? Then, uh, let me make sure there's nothing else here I wanted to cover. Both given by the Holy Spirit, traditions. Okay. The books of Scripture must be acknowledged as teaching firmly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God wanted to put into the sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. That's Vatican II's position on the Scriptures. That is the same position as that of the liberal Protestant theologian. So, and let me say, we've said it this way before, so it'll help you. We say at Grace Baptist Church, that the Bible is the Word of God, and it's perfect. What they're saying here is that the Bible contains the Word of God, and it's true where it deals with salvation. But there are room for there. But it may be in error when it's talking about history or science. That's the position of the Roman Catholic Church. How many of you that surprises you? That really, I just learned that this week. That surprised me. I would have thought that they would have would have had an authoritative fundamentalist position on the authority of the text, but they don't, okay? Um, what do the Methodists believe? This was something that I really wanted to find out. What is the, the United Methodist Church? So I went to the United Methodist Church website, not, not the local United Methodist Church, but the, the organization for the Methodists, and this is their statement on the Scriptures. We hold that the writers of the Bible were inspired, that they were filled with God's Spirit as they wrote the truth to the best of their knowledge. 
So God inspired them to write to the best of their knowledge. Well, the Bible says that, that the Bible writers wrote stuff they didn't understand. So that is not to the best of their knowledge. See the difference? Then, the Bible's authority is therefore nothing magical. For example, we do not open the text at random to discover God's will. The authority of Scripture derives from the movement of God's Spirit in times past and in our reading of it today. So God's authority, the authority of God in His Word, comes out as I read it and it becomes real to me. It's authoritative whether I was ever born. See the difference? Now you understand how the United Methodist Church can have a different interpretation of the Bible than we do. When we teach that marriage is between a man and a woman for life, one man, one woman for life, we get that from the Word of God. They're going to say, well, that can be a person. And that their, their expression is a valid expression of love between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Where do you get that? You can't get that from an authoritative statement on morality from the Scriptures. All right? What about Mormons? Here's their statement. And again, I went to their direct sources. The Bible is not the whole of the Word of God. There have been other prophets in the history of the world, and Mormons believe that there are prophets today. Their words are also divinely inspired and never contradict the Bible. Okay? So there are many things the Book of Mormon teaches, or that Mormonism teaches. Mormonism teach that, teaches that Jesus Christ and Satan are brothers. Anybody here believe that? Isn't that strange? That we were all gods in the past and that the, what we need to do is discover our godness. It's in us. We just need to reclaim our godness and then we can all be gods. That's what Mormonism is. So many other things that we could teach. They don't teach that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. That's not what they teach. We're all sons of God. So the, they're, 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 that's a very different interpretation because they do not hold this as the exclusive authority and they believe that there are prophets today now let me say this in broader christianity there are people who believe that there are prophets today the charismatic movement are going to believe uh, people in the charismatic movement are going to believe that god would speak to benny hen and benny hen will speak from god and that is just as authoritative as the word of god that's false this is our only authority. Remember, in Christianity, there are four branches of Christianity all based on authority. Traditional Christianity, Roman Catholicism, and those in the Protestant community that are moving toward the Catholic Church, their authority is the Word of God and tradition. We've already seen that. And if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and tradition, there's the Word of God, tradition. If there's ever a conflict, tradition always overrules the Word of God. Purgatory. Immaculate Conception, all of those things. All right? Then, second group, Charismatic Christianity. In Charismatic Christianity, these are the people that believe that God is still speaking today, and He is speaking in dreams and visions through prophets. And what they're going to say is that their authority is the Word of God and, and experience. When you challenge someone who holds those views with the Word of God, they're going to say, but wait a minute, you weren't there. You don't understand. You didn't have to be there. You know, uh, at Daddy's funeral, three doves came down, and I knew one of those doves was Daddy. No. Your dad, if he's saved, is looking at Jesus. He doesn't care about the doves. See, that. It, it, but if there's ever a conflict between the Word of God and their experience, their experience is always going to overrule the Word of God. The third group are broader evangelicalism. And their authority is the Word of God and scholarship. Haven't we already seen that from R.C. Sproul? You have the authority of the Word of God, but overruling that authority. Now, he wouldn't say it this way, but it's been demonstrated by his recommendations. You have the Word of God, and then you have the scholar's interpretation of the Word of God that is authoritative. And then our position is, this is the authority. We just believe what it says. We submit to it. That is the, that is the reason for the differences in interpretation. Okay, now. Uh, let's just skip past that. Okay, so how did these lines come? Just quick history of interpretation. This is our same line. You remember? True line, false line. Our method of interpretation, believe it or not, goes all the way back to Antioch of Syria. The same place. Where were they first called Christians? Antioch. 
This is the same place that gave us the text that underlines our King James, that underlies our King James Bible. They, this is one church, one, one form of understanding of what a church is, one Bible, and one method of interpreting the Bible, Antioch of Syria. All right? The Bible simply means what it says. All right? So this is us. <laughs> this is them. Alexandria, two lines of church history. Two lines of church history. Remember that? Two lines of a text. Remember this guy? Origen corrupted the text, and this text came down here along with the Roman Catholic system. All right, so Alexandria, Egypt. In Alexandria, there was a man named Philo. Philo lived from 20 B.C. to 50 A.D., and what Philo wanted to do was he wanted to take the Old Testament scriptures and meld them to the Greek philosophers. He did that by allegorizing the text. He taught that there was an that the, the that underlying the literal meaning of the text is an allegory that it's that is its real meaning. The literal means nothing; it's not important. The the, the spiritual story is what's important. Um, Clement, Clement, and his full name Clement of Alexandria. Clement is the father of the allegorical method for the Christian church. He was he influenced a man named Origen. You remember Origen? Origen's the man that corrupted the Bible in 30,000 places, the text, the Greek text in 30,000 places. Origen is also the father of the allegorical method of Scripture interpretation. He said all of Scripture is one great allegory, and he, he rejected the literal interpretation of the Bible. He just rejected it wholesale. Next, you have Augustine. Augustine, in his doctrine, he wrote a book on church doctrine. He lived from 354 to 430. I want to just give you a few of the things that he said. He gave 12 rules for interpreting Scripture. His third rule was, Scripture has more than one meaning, and therefore the allegorical method is the proper one. Did you all hear what I just said? Augustine said that Scripture has more than one meaning, and the proper meaning is the allegorical one. That's just false. That is completely false. His tenth rule was, the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for the necessary learning to understand the Scripture. Really? Hmm. You know what the Bible says? You have no need that any man teach you. But the Holy Spirit will teach you. Will guide you into all truth. Very interesting. Um... So his 10th rule, the Holy Spirit is not a substitute for the necessary learning to understand the Scripture. The interpreter should know Hebrew, Greek, geography, and other subjects. Does that remind you of R.C. Sproul? And you wonder why Sproul sends you back to Augustine to understand the Bible. In practice, Augustine forsook most of his own principles and tended toward excessive allegorization. He based uh, this on 2 Corinthians 3, 6 where it says that the letter of the law kills. So he thought that the literal interpretation of the Bible kills, but an allegorical or spiritual interpretation gives life. And this became the dominant understanding of the Bible all through the Middle Ages. Folks, what's another word for the Middle Ages? The Dark Ages. The Bible says, The entrance of thy words giveth light. You take away the word of God from people, you tell them there's no meaning, and that is why there is darkness evil wickedness we spent time understanding that in the in the 1200s in france man they, they were eating each other in europe crazy that was the dark ages that's what happens when you remove the bible from people's hands get william manchester's book it's called a world lit only by fire he's a guy that hates christianity and he writes about the dark ages man it'll curl your blood to find out what was the result of Augustine's interpretation of the scriptures. But remember, this is the guy that killed 30,000 Donatists. But good old R.C. wants you to go learn the Bible from him. Unbelievable, man. You've got to take your brain out and play with it to think like that. Next school. This Antioch of Syria. Do you know what their position was? Their position stated, very simple, they attempted... To avoid the allegorisms of the Alexandrians, they staunchly defended the principle of grammatical and historical interpretation. They believed the text should be interpreted according to the rules of grammar and the facts of history. But here's what happened. There was a man, his name was Nestorus in here. He, got a, he ended up with a faulty position on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what happened was they were able to, this group was able to use this guy, Nestorus, 
to eliminate this influence from all of their churches. Now, praise God, there were still people believing the Word of God, teaching it all through this period of history. Um, but they traced their roots back to Antioch. All right, so what happened? You get to the Reformation. The Reformation right here, uh, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, all of that. What happened was he had gotten Erasmus's 1516 Greek text, had started to learn what the Bible had said about justification, the just shall live by faith. And he, they came back over here with the scriptures and took a literal view of the scriptures for a period of time. But the problem was they left the Catholic Church, but all the Catholic Church didn't leave them. They still allegorized the passages on baptism. They still allegorized the passages on circumcision. They took circumcision to be the physical right for the Jews, and then infant baptism became the physical right for the Christian. The Bible never equates those two. It never does. Baptism is always of believers by immersion. Always. But they, so they accepted. They kept some of those teachings. And so they, got, they came to a semi-literal interpretation of the Scripture, which led them open to go back into this form of understanding. How did that happen? Remember what happened? 1881, revised version of the Bible comes out. And all of the Protestants started running back toward this view of Scripture. What happened? Yet German higher criticism came in. Higher criticism, in the words of the Roman Catholic Church, this is from Cardinal Ratzinger's position. He says the way that, we, that the, the church should interpret the Bible now is based on the historical critical method. I'm going to have it described for you here by Cardinal Ratzinger. And it's the same position that all, all of Protestantism took. All right. It says, um, the historical critical method is the indispensable method. You hear that? The indispensable method for the scientific study of the meaning of ancient texts. Holy Scripture, inasmuch as it is the word of God in human language, inasmuch as it is, has been composed by human authors in all its various parts and in all the sources that lie behind them. Because of this, its proper understanding not only admits the use of this method, but actually requires it. So Ratzinger said, in order to understand the Bible, you've got to accept this historical critical method. And then he said, certain elements of this method, you've got to get this. I know some of you are getting tired. I know this is hard. Thank you for hanging in there. We're almost done. This historical critical method. Ratzinger is saying where it came from. Are you ready for this? Certain elements of this method of interpretation are very ancient. They were used in antiquity by Greek commentators of classic literature and much later in the course of the patristic period, that's the fathers, the church fathers, by authors such as Origen, Jerome, and Augustine. So here, Augustine corrupts the church here. It comes down. Reformation takes it away. Down here at 1881, Protestants fall right back into Augustine's trap. Do you know what John Calvin called his system of theology? Reformed Augustinianism. You see, error has legs. It lives. It moves on. It carries all the way down here. And the Roman Catholic system right now claims that historical critical method the same as most of the books at the Christian bookstore. Anyone read The Shack? Don't raise your hand. That book teaches universal salvation, that everybody's going to get saved. Has God as a woman. Just, that, that's, why? Yeah, the words don't mean anything. Words don't mean anything. It's all allegory. That's just your interpretation. You see, we must understand how these wicked people have taken the Bible from us. I want you to know that you can rest on this. It is true. Thy words are pure, therefore thy servant loveth them. These are true words. You have exalted your word above your very name. This is the perfect word of God. We can trust it. Amen? We have a more sure word of prophecy. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1. And that's why no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. There's a reason that there's all these different interpretations of the Bible. And it goes back to men who lied about the Bible 
And then you have religious leaders today sending us back to this filth. It is wrong. People will say to me, Pastor, why are you so hard on this stuff? Why can't you be more loving? Because hell is real. Bart Ehrman, I mentioned him the other day, he wrote the book, Misquoting Jesus. And the reason that he did, he rejects the truth of the Word of God. He grew up in a fundamentalist church. He went to Moody Bible Institute. Then he went to Wheaton. Then he went to Princeton. He was taught that nowhere can we find the preserved Word of God. It was inspired. But the, but the, the reason that we have textual critics is to determine what part of the Bible is really true. And his position was, if God can't preserve his word, why should I believe he inspired it in the first place? And he has gone on to destroy the faith of thousands. His book, that one book, sold more than 100,000 copies. John Stewart had him on The Daily Show promoting his infidelity. Why? Because he had some teachers who claimed to believe the word of God. They just didn't believe what it said. Folks, why are there so many different interpretations? Because people simply do not trust the book. I'm going to tell you here, as long as God allows me to be the pastor at Grace Baptist Church, we are going to believe the book. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We trust you. We believe you.